quite a passage today. It's a lot to cover. You can stretch your legs there now that you're seated. A lot to cover, but wanted to cover it in one movement rather than multiple movements because of all that is going on here and how all these pieces fit together in the course of the Gospel of John. But I want to start with just this line. It's a line from a movie that I had seen some time ago. And uh, the line is this. I hate you people. I hate you people. The line comes from a son in a moment of absolute brokenness and anger. He yells it at his family members because he's hurt. And he looks at his mom and he says, divorced. He looks at his stepdad and goes, bankrupt. And he looks at his uncle who had just failed a suicide attempt. He said, suicide? And you can just feel in that moment, like, like the family members have have been outed. There they are before an angry son who calls out the worst in them. Maybe the most embarrassing in them. The thing that you don't want people to know. And families are so good at that. We weaponize knowledge. We weaponize knowledge of the people we love. Only people will say things like that to usually. You always are like this. You never do this. I wish I had a different family. All these things, when you, when, when you feel exposed, you, you feel caught. I have, I have pastor fears. Like, what if I cuss during a sermon? I have dreams about this. What if somebody realizes that, that I can be lazy, that I'm cool sleeping in, there are some super Christians out there, but I'm not one of them. Uh, what if someone finds out that my thought life isn't always pure? Or uh, what if smartphones existed when I was in high school? How many times would I have been arrested? And, and I think it's true. It's true for me. I think it's true for many of us. We do kind of live in fear of being found out. We live in fear of being found out. Because the people who might expose us do it to hurt us. They do it to injure us. They don't do it because they love us. And it often comes out like it does in the movie. We're in a moment of absolute anger, frustration, where you're just dejected. You start to lash out and tell people all the things you hate about them. And I remember having a conversation with my own family member one time. Older man. And I started to say some things in front of friends that were embarrassing about him. I was in high school at the time. And he pulled me aside and he, he said, Hans, that, that is embarrassing. It is embarrassing. You know, parents in the room, you probably have been embarrassed by your child as they've gotten older. And they've said things to you in front of friends in order to make you look small. And so what do we do? <laughs> Right, We just start to put these walls up because we don't want people to see that. Because if we do get found out, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? We're cool with, let's even just say 60% of our lives being known. But if you actually find out the rest, not okay. However, when it comes to Jesus, he knows all of us. 
in every way. And we're still standing. We're still here. What does he do with people that he knows fully? How does Jesus treat people he knows fully? Well, in John 4, 1 through 42, we get to see Jesus' interaction with the, the common parlance, the woman at the well, or the Samaritan woman. It's a passage many know. And they know it because maybe they've been preached. We use it to teach evangelism methods. How do you evangelize based upon John 4? We use it to talk about the way people care, the way Jesus cares. There's a lot of things that we use in this passage to discuss Jesus' interaction with outsiders. But one thing that we will get to see here, so I was trying to figure out, how do you, how do you structure a sermon that's 42 verses of narrative in the Gospel of John? Right? It doesn't just go one, two, three. You don't just line it out like that. He's like, 42 verses in the Gospel of John. And so I was working with some friends on this outline, trying to go, how do you, how do you say this? And so this is what we're going to do. I'm going to give you six statements about Jesus right now, and then we'll go through each one. Okay, six statements about Jesus. So if you want them all up front, and then you want to tune out the rest of the time, that's on you. Right? So here are all six, and then we'll look at the passage and go, what is going on here, and how does this reveal to us more about Jesus? Let's not lose what John's doing here. John's teaching us about Jesus, his person, his work, his heart, his ministry, his emphasis. So here are the six. Jesus is the one who comes to our town. It's the first statement. Jesus is the one who comes to our town. Secondly, Jesus is the one offering eternal life. Third, Jesus, the one confronting us for our good. Fourth, Jesus, the one wanting true worshipers. Fifth, Jesus, the one sending us into the harvest. And sixth, Jesus, the Savior of the world. Those are the six statements that will be our signposts in John 4, 1 through 42 this morning. Because he is our savior. He should be listened to. But you do see a lot going on here. You see the interaction between Jesus and the woman. You see the interaction between the woman and the townspeople. The townspeople and Jesus. And Jesus and his disciples. In all of these statements there are that we have, these six statements that we have, there are interactions going on. Many of them coming from the beginning of this passage. The interaction with the woman, where it's just... Her and Jesus, together at a well. So let's start with Jesus, the one who came to our town, or comes to our town. If you see in chapter 4, he's leaving the Judean ministry that was going on, where there was baptism happening, because his popularity is increasing, and Jesus is generally not one to run to popularity. He runs from it. So when, when there's interest going on in him, for good or bad reasons it really does seem, but when Jewish leaders are becoming interested in Jesus, he leaves. And so as he's going, 
he moves through Samaria to get to Galilee, which is the most natural route. You go north through Israel, but you have to go through Samaria if you're going to get to Galilee. Now, there's conversation about how, well, some you know, really good Jewish people would go around. I don't think that we know that for sure. Not every good Jewish person goes around. Some would still just take the road that is the quickest road. But what we do have, they probably wouldn't stop at the well. They wouldn't interact with the townspeople if they were going on their road. I remember listening to a counselor at Pine Cove share with me. She goes, yeah, you know, I think she lived in Texas. She talked about vacations that they would go on. But when they would go through Louisiana, because there's two interstates that get cut through Louisiana, right? I-10 in the south and what I-20 in the north. And so as you're going, you know, Louisiana is like a pass-through state. They were like, she even said, my mom would not let us go to the bathroom in Louisiana. Something like that. Like we would just, we would be in Texas, right? And you just keep, you just go through North Louisiana and then you can stop off in Mississippi. And I'm like, Mississippi, that's no better. Right? You're not getting to Alabama. That's no better. You're just going to hold it until you get to Florida? I don't know. But it's that same kind of spirit. Hey, we're on our way. We're on our way. We're just going to go right on through Samaria. We're not going to stop. We're going to go right on through. Jesus doesn't do that. He's not baptizing, but he's leaving Judea. He's going to Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria because it's on the way. It's on the way. But he goes to a town called Sychar, and there's a field that is given. That field has Jacob's well there. Interestingly, Jacob's well is still there. You can actually still see it. Now, you can't get down there, but you can, if you're on like Mount, Mount Gerizim, you can see it. The little red roof, or at least that's what it had. But you're not going to get all the way down there. You can just see it from a distance. <clears throat> and so Jacob's well was there, which was, as they explain, a plot given, a well that was given, a well that was dug out, because you got to have water. But it had stayed an important part of really the Jewish people's history and then the Samaritan's people's history. And it's right outside, Jacob's well is right outside of what would be historically a city or a town called Shechem. Maybe you've heard this if you're in our reading plan, you're reading the Old Testament. It shows up already in Genesis. But it shows up in a town called Shechem. And a lot of history happens at Shechem. In fact, we even have this line early on. Remember Genesis 12 where God reveals his plan for Abram? He says, go to the land that I will show you. Verses 6 and 7, we get this of Genesis chapter 12. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. He's saying this to him, confirming it at Shechem. Jacob comes later, but Jacob's well is not far from Shechem. You can see it. To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. So you already see, even from Genesis 12, this area becomes important. But who were the Samaritans and where did they come from? Well, the Samaritans were a people who were religiously separate than the Jewish people. You can actually read what happens in 2 Kings. Just put a little footnote. 2 Kings 17, 24 through 28. What, what begins to happen, and this is what a kingdom would do, is a kingdom would intermarry or put its people in an area 
to add to its kingdom in a sense. So the Samaritans and the, the kind of come from the Assyrians bringing people into the area, intermarrying, and so now we have this religiously separate group. They only hold the first five books, right? First five books of Moses. That's what they think are the holy books. <clears throat> they would not take the rest of what a Jewish man or woman would hang on, listen to, and obey. The first five holy books, they're right by where, as, as, as they come into the land, there's Mount Ebal, there's Mount Gerizim, and they're, they're saying back and forth these promises to one another. That's where it's happening. All it overlooks Shechem. In fact, the Samaritans, you may not know this, the Samaritans are still around. You can go to Israel, they could, if you can get to Samaria, I don't know if you still can, we've been there, Courtney and I have been there. They still sacrifice. They still follow their high holy days. You can YouTube it. You can see it. They have places of sacrifice and drains where you sacrifice your animals. So it drains out. This still goes on. There are still Samaritans right there in that area. So religiously separate, ethnically separate, geographically separate. That's where they are. And what does Jesus do? Jesus comes Right through, even though a Jewish person might disregard a Samaritan. And this is so important to remember about Jesus. Jesus finds us. Jesus finds us. He comes to town. He walks through. He finds us. He might go, what are you doing here? He says, I was looking for you. But that's the interaction that we get. It is no mistake because Jesus only does what his father puts before him. It is no mistake that he is at a well outside Samaria having a conversation with a woman in the middle of the day. It is no mistake. He knows. Jesus finds us. <clears throat> now we get the interaction between Jesus and this woman. Jesus, that second statement, the one offering eternal light, eternal life. We see that as they have the interaction, he goes, give me something to drink. Disciples are gone. The Samaritan woman is confused. How is it that you ask me for a drink? And you look at John's parenthetical comment, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, or, or you could say it like this, they don't share things. They don't share vessels. You're not going to drink out of my cup. I'm not going to drink out of your cup. We don't, we don't do this. We don't share a table together. So she's a bit shocked. But let's just think really quick. In John 3... Beginning of John 3, what do we have? Jesus talking to Nicodemus. In John 4, who do we have? Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman. And what do we have in these? Let's just think about the differences that are before us between John 3 and John 4. In John 3 with Nicodemus, you have a man who is a religious leader, who would be considered morally upright, who would be respected by his people, who knew a lot. Knew a lot of the scriptures, taught a lot of the scriptures. That's what you have in Nicodemus. In the Samaritan woman, you have a woman who is a Samaritan, would not interact with Jewish people, would not be considered, as you get to Jesus' comments about her marriages, would not be considered morally pure in the same way, would not have the same kind of respect. There's even questions as to why this woman would be drawing water by herself in the middle of the afternoon. Right? Why would she be doing that? <clears throat> who doesn't have the same knowledge and doesn't use the same resources. She uses the first five books. They use the rest of the Old Testament, as we would call it. So they are different people. But why might John be showing us both of these? Because they both are outside of the kingdom. 
They're both outside of the kingdom. The religious insider and the religious outsider, the male and the female, the one who thought they had it together and the one who knows they don't have it together, both these people stand outside of the kingdom being offered life through Jesus. Jesus uses language with Nicodemus in regard to being born from above or being born again. But what does Jesus do in this interaction? He uses the language of the well. He uses what's right there before him. He asks for a drink. She's confused. And then he flips it on her and says this, If you knew the gift of God and who it was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Which, we've talked about this before. I didn't know that was an option. Like, I'm, give me a drink. Sir, you know we don't interact together. If you knew who I was, you would have asked me for a drink. Like, that's not on the list of the appropriate questions to ask. In the same way, Nicodemus goes to Jesus and says, we know you've come from God because no one who does the works you do could, could not come from God. And Jesus goes, I tell you the truth, unless somebody is born again, they can't enter the kingdom of... You're like, where did that come from? So there's this just, it, it almost, if you're, I took a class in college called conversation. That's really what it was called. Where like, like the art of like diagramming how a conversation flows and where does it move and how does it work. And so you have to record things and have, they have a whole code they use to try and transcript out conversations and define when things change and when things move. <clears throat> if you're tracking with this conversation, it's like Jesus says something, person replies. Jesus does not answer, but replies with something that was not even on the table to begin with. That's what Jesus is doing. So she's confused about the living water. And that might make sense because she doesn't latch on to the prophets. But maybe somebody who had read the prophets might understand more of what Jesus is offering. You'd hope so, but we also know this is not generally the case. Jeremiah 2.13, the Lord says this about his people. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. The fountain, of living, the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water, hold no water. <clears throat> so even though she might not be familiar with the language, Jesus is going back into historic prophecy from Der- Jeremiah about how God offers true water. <clears throat> the, the idea of living water often would mean flowing Flowing water, even though cisterns hold rainwater, that God is a fountain of living water, which means that there's always water flowing from him. So Jesus says, <coughs> sorry, it's the donut, donut in my throat, forgive me. <clears throat> I told myself not to eat it. I said, don't do it, Hans. You know better. Nothing like washing it down a little coffee. You know better, Hans, but <clears throat> I don't know better. So he says, I would offer you living water. The offer really is eternal life. It's the same offer that goes to Nicodemus. It's being used as the illustration of living water because God has seen and revealed himself as one who is their source of life. You can continually come to me. I don't run dry. Unlike the other things in life that we might pursue. Our relationships, our jobs, our bank accounts, our lives. The other things that we pursue that run dry, they run out, they do not satisfy. And Jesus is offering to this woman his satisfaction. I give you something. And if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for it. Because Jesus knows what he's there to do. 
He knows how he has come into the world. But we often respond to Jesus' invitation with confusion. What do you mean living water? What do you mean living water? You can't even draw out of this well. Where do you get that living water? She goes historic on him. Are you greater than Jacob? He gave us this well. He dug it himself. But Jesus says in verse 13, anyone who drinks of this will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. Because it will be in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. So what does the woman say? Same thing we would probably say. I would like this water. I don't want to have to keep coming to this well. And she's, she's still not understanding the offer at that point in time. I would like what you have. I'm really tired of coming out here. So do you have something that I could, you know, like, is it automated? How does this work? So she's still responding to Jesus just at the word construction versus understanding the offering that is there. You're offering living water. He says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Well, that is true. Jesus, for us, is the source in our life, of all that we need, of all the forgiveness that we have, the forgiveness of our sin, the restoration of life, the hope of eternal life, and the promise that is offered to us in Jesus. And still, what happens? We reject him. It takes him revealing to us that he is this person. He really, truly is this person before we can come He's the life giver that we have abandoned. And so she's going, I would like what you have. But Jesus is about to do something where he reveals more about her than she would like. But she doesn't seem to be bothered by it. I think that's what happens when Jesus reveals our sin to us, our need to us. It can be uncomfortable. We can deflect, but at the same time, it's different than when our friends or our family members or even people who love us bring it up. Because Jesus does it and means no harm. So he's taking her, I would like this water, I don't want to come to the well anymore, and he offers this invitation where he said, Jesus, the one confronting us for our good, he confronts her. Go and get your husband and tell him to come here. And the woman said, I don't have a husband. I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have five. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. I mean, just like that. He's able to look at her and say something to her that would make any of us squirm. And yet, she doesn't. She deflects like you would do or I would do, but she doesn't squirm. I don't know if anybody's looked at you and been able to say something like that, see through your soul and say something, but the Lord can. And we like to try and distract and confuse with our words. I was joking with a friend. It's kind of like uh, because many of us probably wouldn't have this interaction with Jesus but if, you know, they said, hey, bring a beer when you come back. And you go, I don't have any beer. You go, you're right, because they're all in the fridge, empty, because you drank them all. And you're like, wait a minute. Right? You know, I thought I could get out by just telling you what was true. 
but you're not going to let that happen. You're going to actually see past what I'm saying and look at the heart. This is what Jesus does with everybody. When they interact with him, he goes, I'm not going to mess with your smoke screens. I know what's going on with you. And so he puts his finger right there on this uncomfortable part of his life. And in fact, people might even say, in looking at this and seeing this woman and how she's there drawing water at a little after lunchtime, why she would be there with no one else. Because why do you draw water in the middle of the day? There are no trees around. you got to walk out there in the heat, get the water, come back. Why? Some thoughts are because even by her own people, she was an outcast. There was no buddy system here. It was, see ya, go out there, but there's Jesus. Now, what we know about this, because Jesus is aware of all that has gone on in this woman's life, but listen to what she says to her people after she leaves. So the disciples come back. They're confused. The woman leaves her jar. That's how important it is to her that she just gets back to town. She doesn't even bring the water that she came for. She goes back and she talks to the people in her town. And she says in verse 29, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And that right there is the difference between Jesus exposing our sin and me exposing your sin. Because when Jesus does it, it doesn't burn. It's not made to hurt or to harm. It's made to reveal need. And she's heard him. And he he put his finger right on what was going on in her heart. And she runs back to her town and said, this guy knows everything about me. Could this be the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one? Could this be the one? That's the kind of exposure of hearts that Jesus does. When it happens, you go, let me tell you about somebody. Let me tell you about this person who knows everything about me. Yeah, even that, and even that, even that. So Jesus, the one who confronts us for our good, the one who confronts us and reveals our need, reveals our sin, reveals the fact that we are far from him, when he reveals that to us, it is for our good so that we would come to him. He reveals the problem and he offers the solution. He reveals the problem and he offers a solution. And I want to say this to you, and I mean this. You may not believe this. It's hard to grab onto, but Jesus knows all of you. He knows everything. He created you. He knows every sin, every embarrassment, every self-righteous act. Everything that anybody around this table or around this room would say, oh, they did it because they love God, and they know, he knows you did it because you love you. Everything that you've hidden, everything that you've tried to hide, and everything that you have flaunted because you want to be seen well, he knows all of that. But I would also maybe say it like this, for everyone who's afraid of being known, Jesus knows you. 
For those who are in hiding, Jesus finds you. And we can fear what that might mean for our reputation, for our friendships, for our ministry, for our status. We can fear that and just try and go more deeply into hiding. Or we can trust that there's no better person to expose our sins than the Lord. And so I would ask this of anybody. Can you trust Christ the one who paid the price for the worst of you, for all of you. Can you trust him to forgive those offenses, to cover over them and to give you eternal life? Can you see that God's love for you is so deep? that Christ would die for you. And come off, come down off of our self-righteous high horses. Now we don't have any needs and realize that we are absolute failures without the Lord. And he knows it. If you're coming over to my house uh, today uh, for our third through sixth grade boys Bible study or the one that's going to be at Matt's house for the older kids. Like, you're going to hear two things. I'm going to go ahead and say them now. You're going to hear two things there. Jesus doesn't avoid you and Jesus isn't embarrassed by you. Jesus doesn't avoid you and Jesus isn't embarrassed by you. But a lot of stuff embarrasses us. And we misread even people who might avoid us. Not so with the Messiah. He doesn't avoid you, and he isn't embarrassed by you. Fourth statement, Jesus, the one wanting true worshipers. When Jesus exposes this part of this woman's life, what does she do? She says in in the flow, I see that you're a prophet. And she makes it about worship. Because she has the first five books, and so Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, which they're able to look at. She points to Mount Gerizim, and she says, we worship on this mountain. But you say, because it didn't become Jerusalem until later, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where we are supposed to worship. So what do you do? You deflect. When things get exposed, you change the subject. So the subject got changed. Oh, I see you're a prophet. You know things. Well, let me talk, let's talk about worship. She highlights the differences that are both religious, where worship happens, or how it happens, and geographical. We're here, you're there. But Jesus highlights something unique. We worship what we know. You worship what you don't know. We, and in fact, I believe he's speaking of the Jewish people, we worship what we know. Why? Because he takes all of what was spoken, all of what was prophesied, every prophet, every history, every story, it's all a part of the Jewish people's bank of revelation. The Samaritans only take Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So you're talking about worship, but you don't even know what you're talking about is what he says to the woman. We, we worship what we do know. We're aware of what God has revealed. It's not just you say, I say. 
You say worship should happen here. We say worship should happen here. This isn't a debate about what you think is more preferential. This is a debate about what is right. And Jesus says it. Salvation is from the Jews. The Messiah comes from the Jewish people. It is Jesus. He'll even say it. He'll even say it. And so what they have this conversation is there will come a time when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Well, what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? There are different interpretations of spirit and in truth. I think what we have are really two things. John is one that does not shy away from the Holy Spirit. I think spirit being those who are indwelled by God's spirit, which comes after faith in Jesus. Spirit and truth, those who are rooted in truth, what has been revealed by God, those who worship God, worship him not by geography, but in spirit and in truth. When we gather together every single Sunday as a church, that would be our aim. That the spirit enables our worship, that it is rooted in the truth of what God has done. Spirit and truth. Not bound by geography. Now this is incredibly difficult for a Samaritan mind or a Jewish mind in that moment. Why? Well, we get the book of Acts and that's when we start to realize that the, the centralization of the faith doesn't work. <clears throat> you don't just have the Jerusalem church in the book of Acts after the Spirit comes. That kind of starts, but then you're in it in our reading plan right now. We're in Acts 14, and so now we're starting to see the missionary journeys, and we're seeing this expansion. In fact, this, the, kind of the hub of sending moves north to Antioch rather than the Jerusalem church, and that becomes the important part of the sending part of the Apostle Paul's ministry for the rest of the book. And the gospel begins to go out. In time, it shifts to Rome. But what you find is now... What is offered in Christ's new life that isn't geographically bound? That God can find anyone anywhere. And the Father is looking for true worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus does not take her deflection and go, yeah, let's talk about prophecy. You're not going to tell you this. Both of those ways, be it on Mount Gerizim, or at the temple in Jerusalem, both of those pass away. And it's those who belong to the Father. They worship in spirit and in truth. So she says, of course, I know Messiah's coming. I know he's coming. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. He'll, get, he'll, he'll make this known to us. He will be an explainer. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. So what do we see here? Well, he's already disclosing himself to her. It's interesting. He actually tells her more about who he is than he tells a Jewish person. Have you noticed that? Like, if, if you read his interactions with Jewish leaders, he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't say this about himself. But he says this to the Samaritan woman. 
It, it, was, it was almost as if, you could say it this way, he was more comfortable revealing more about his specific ministry to an outsider who was yearning to hear what he had to say than somebody who had it all together. But we get now, as she's about to leave, she's about to leave the picture for a second. She's going to go tell her townspeople. What we get now is Jesus interacting with his disciples about what's going on. So Jesus, the one sending us into the harvest. First, they're confused. Why are you doing this? Why are you talking to this woman in this way? This shouldn't be. That was the first thing. They're a little shocked. But they're too embarrassed to say anything. They're like, well, he's Jesus. I can't say, hey, man, why are you doing that? Because he always has a reason. Right? Like, I, can't, I can't win an argument with Jesus because he's Jesus. And so I'm just going to go ahead. It's confusing to me, but we'll just let that be. We'll make the conversation about why he hasn't eaten yet. So verse 31, the disciples are there. They see him. The woman's going off. And he said, Rabbi, eat. And then he does this same thing he did with Nicodemus. And he does with the woman at the well. He doesn't answer their question. He doesn't eat. I have food to eat that you do not know about. Huh? You sent me into town to get food. And now I come bring the food back to do what I was supposed to do. And you tell me you're full. So I would do the same thing. Verse 33. Has anyone brought him something to eat? Maybe he ate. Maybe somebody, maybe somebody brought him something. I don't know. But we don't understand why he's telling us this now. Then he gives the answer. Verse 34. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. Well, this is really hard for me to read. And I'll tell you why. Because I love a good meal. And I like good food. And I'm going to eat it. I'm going to eat a good, good bit of it too. I like a good meal. And this is Texas. So barbecue is good. So why am I reading Jesus' words in verse 34? My food is to do the will of one who sent me and to accomplish his work. Why do I see this? And I know you and I know me. When I'm hungry, I like to eat. We already saw at the beginning of the passage that Jesus was wearied from his journey. When you're wearied, what do you do? You sleep or you eat. And yet right there in the moment, he says, I have a different kind of food. What do I learn here? Mm, This is hard for the Texan. There's something more important than liking food. There's something more important than buying food or cooking food or eating food. More important? More important than eating? You guys know what you do when you go on vacation. Your whole vacation revolves around where you're going to eat. You research it in advance. You plan it out. You probably didn't have Samaria on your list of restaurant stops, but your whole, anytime you do something, it's like, oh, when we go here, we stop here. We go here, we stop here. If we're going here, we got to figure out the best restaurants. You probably have contacts in your phone of restaurants on trips that you go to just to be sure. You have probably even said, hey, I'm five minutes out. I know you closed just now, but can you please hold on to a side of ribs for me because I'm almost there. Just stay open. You probably had that phone call. 
And what do we learn from Jesus? Eating is way less significant than obedience. That you become a different kind of fool when you listen to what God says and you do it. And we learn that by seeing Jesus. Who lives on every word that God speaks. That messes with me. Because it's hard. It's hard to realize that food is an idol for many of us. It's something we care way too much about. We care far more about lunch than we do obedience. I'll get to you after I have lunch. Jesus didn't say that, did he? He didn't say that. Hey, hold on, the disciples are bringing food back. I'm going to eat that, and then if you're still here, we'll talk. He entered right in. And then used that to teach his disciples about how his obedience to his father was more important than eating. A food you do not know about. And it shows, he then shows how his disciples can do the same thing. Rather than just sitting around right there, pulling up a picnic blanket and eating the food that they have purchased, he teaches about the harvest. Now this is what I imagine. I imagine the Samaritans have now heard what the woman has said. There's a guy out here you have to come see. And they didn't have TikTok, so they couldn't actually just look at the TikTok videos of her interaction. So they had to go out and see Jesus. And so they start to come out. Like I said, they're geographically separate. They're not driving into Jerusalem for work. They wouldn't be accepted there anyways. So they're all in town. And so they go, hey, right out here where the well is, let's go have that conversation. So they might have to walk a couple hundred yards. But they go, yeah, yeah, it's that guy over there. With the, see those little guys right there? There's a small, right? yeah, we're going to go out and talk to them. And so they're all coming. And Jesus says, don't you say, four months in the harvest, he's talking in agricultural terms. And he's like, look, God has prepared a harvest. Entering into that work is more important than the meal you're about to have. So the Samaritans are coming out, and they're hungry, and they're thirsty, but not for food and not for water. And Jesus sends them into that work. And I love what he, actually, what he says, because he, he says like this, One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you've entered into their labor. Jesus did the work. The Spirit is preparing people. He goes, I'm not even asking you to do everything. In fact, I'm just asking you to have fun at the end with the people who are coming out and are interested. Jesus sends us into the harvest that he has prepared which frees me up in evangelism. Because I pray and I pray and I pray and I pray, God, save this person, save this person, provide opportunities. May you move in this person's life. Maybe even crisis comes in, but do a work. And then what happens? If you don't pray this, I beg that you pray like this. You would pray that God would save people, that God would use you to save people, that, that God would be moving in people's lives and that you would step in at the moment that he has prepared somebody and you could offer them what Jesus gives. And so he looks 
And I want to say this, Genesis, God is drawing people to himself. I know some of you are involved with Charisma and the ministry she does at her apartment complex. Like, every other week, there are people at our church who are from that complex. There are always invites, it seems. There's always people around. There's always stuff going on. God is drawing people. The ministry that we have done in the past through ICX, which is international students in collegiate settings around here, often uh, adult families, like, they're some of the most in- interesting and interested people in spiritual things. God is drawing people. <clears throat> Schindewolf, right down the road, a school that is saying, help us, we know who you are, we know what you do, come be a part of what we're doing here. We have more families and more needs and more things, than, than it, right? We're not a big church, look around. I mean, we're all here. We could probably sit every other and just be fine. And, and through three things, just three areas, God is drawing people. God is drawing people. We are sent into a work that God is already doing. We don't create it. We just step into it. So the people come to Jesus, right? Jesus, the one who sends us into the harvest. The people come to Jesus. The townspeople come, and Jesus stays with them for two days, which is so gracious. He's headed to Galilee, and he takes a two-day detour to be with some religious outsiders because they asked. They asked. And he stays and he teaches. And I just want to look at how this finishes. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did So the Samaritans came out, and they asked him to stay, and he stayed for two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed Savior of the world. Jesus, the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of Jews. He's the Savior of Samaritans, the Savior of Gentiles the savior of religious insiders and he's the savior of religious outsiders. He's the savior of people who have never fit in and the savior of people who always thought they have fit in. Because we're all outsiders except through Christ. He is the savior. In our hands, knowledge of people becomes ammunition to harm. We use it inappropriately, often to destroy. And thus we live in isolation from people. We live in isolation from being known and loved. But in God's hand, knowledge of us is uncomfortable. When he shows us who we are, quite uncomfortable. But it can result in our salvation. Because the one who reveals the need also provides the solution. And that's what we need. To trust in the Savior who died for our sins, which he knew about and knows about. Could this be, could this be the Savior of the world? Yes. Trust the Savior who knows all of you. All of you and all of you. 
trust that one because he doesn't do it to harm. He does it to save. He does it to save. 